Hi, Jean Nathan for Crosstown Conversations. Um, week after New Year's, just about, and um, starting a new year, but uh, definitely dealing with some of that pivoting. And as Ian McNulty, my guest today, calls it toggling that's <laughs> happening uh, in our industry. I, I love that expression. Um, so we're going to be talking about a lot um, that has been going on in the industry and in our our you know, one of our most treasured art forms in the city are culinary arts. Um, and Ian has been doing a masterful, just masterful job of, of covering it. And so I um, have been uh, uh, harassing him to do this interview. And I'm very uh, pleased to have him because he kind of knows what's going on. Um, Ian, uh, I thought we would start with just a very brief uh, description of what it was like um, in the beginning. So we're talking April, spring 20. And um, I mean, literally just let's glance on it because that was the big shock. That's when people said, whoa, what? Oh, sure. Yes. And, and I think it's actually helpful to do that at this point because, you know, time has been messing with us lately. I don't know about yeah. you, but for oh, me, yeah. it seems I have to remind myself constantly where we are on this sort of arc of time with this pandemic, uh, that it's been almost two years at this point, which is yeah. It's just shocking, but but you're right. At at, at uh, the very beginning of this uh, this crisis, uh, one of the places where it was felt instantaneously was was the restaurants because uh, these are places where people gather. These are places where people convene. This is one of their their great values to us culturally, socially, uh, and all of a sudden that had to stop. And I had never seen anything like that, and I don't know that anybody. Anybody uh, with us now can compare it to anything else uh, it, in history. It, 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 wasn't, uh, it wasn't a slow build. It wasn't something that you could really prepare for. Uh, it was something that people thought perhaps could happen, and then suddenly it did. And uh, on a dime, you know, all restaurants were closed uh, very, very quickly. Massive numbers of people were laid off. Uh, and at the time, Gene, you know, they, they were saying, you know, oh, this this might go on for two months, and you know, when people heard that, two months, they thought it was an eternity. Yeah, they went they went through the roof. I mean, you know, this is a business that runs on a very thin margin. Restaurants famously have a very thin profit margin, uh, and and any any disruption really uh, ripples through the business. I mean, restaurateurs tell me, you know, pre pandemic, if they they missed a weekend because the power was out or the the water. There's a problem with the water system or something like that, that this could be de devastating for the business. They lost a whole weekend. And now they're talking about losing two months. And that's when people started saying, okay, well, we're gonna see half of the restaurants just shutter. They're just gonna close. No, there's no way they can survive this. Well, they did. You know, here we are, what, 21 months into this thing, 22 months into this thing, depending on how you count it here in 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 America, in the US. And most restaurants haven't closed. We've lost quite a few, tragically, heartbreakingly. Uh, but the main story has been how restaurants and hospitality businesses, bars also, have managed uh, to keep going, to keep their doors open. And it hasn't been this straight line. It's been this undulating course of utter despondency and doom and then hope and then rejuvenation and then uh-oh this is coming again back into the pits uh, i have yeah. to say um just to to bring that right up to the present for a moment and we can backtrack again but um i think this is the one that left people in general kind of saying wait what is this just going to keep going and that is what a lot of people are asking right now. And I imagine the restaurants are thinking about, okay, how are they going to deal with this um, long term? If this, in fact, is, you know, will will we constantly be having a surge a year? It seems like right now it's uh, it's something like at least a surge a year. Well, one of the things that makes restaurants so fascinating to look at through this, and you know, fascinating for us on the sidelines, um, uh, massively stressful for the people who, whose whose livelihoods depend on it, is that. Uh, the restaurants sh show every phase of this crisis because, you know, we're talking about a, a disease that's spread between people. Uh, you stop that by keeping people apart. And what do restaurants do? They bring us together. It's the very nature of what they do. Uh, and so, again, I, I've, I've been impressed. That's an understatement, by the way, that people in the industry have found ways to carry on, especially 
the mom and pops, which are the, the backbone of the New Orleans restaurant scene. You know, we live in a city where, it, yeah, there are chains, there are out-of-town brands, there are things like this, but the what people think about when they think about New Orleans food are mom and pops or small family-run restaurants. They're a little what percentage? What percentage of our restaurants, uh, do you have any clue, really do f- fall into that category? Uh, I couldn't give you a scientific number, but you know, if we're talking about the restaurants that people think about as New Orleans restaurants, I mean, 90%, uh, really? I mean, the, where are the chains? Most of the chains are, you know, on the big commercial strips. Um, you know, you get your fast food places, you've got some more upscale brands that maybe are downtown and the hotels and that sort of thing. But, you know, if we're talking about Little Dizzy's, if we're talking about McCarty's Fried Chicken, if we're talking about Mandina's Restaurant, why? You must you... live near me because those are all my haunts. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, it goes on and on. But even the larger restaurants are family restaurants. You know, you think about Commander's Palace, Antoine's, Galatoire's, Commander's, all of them. Yeah. Dookie Chase's, true. classic example. Yeah. These are all run by families, they're run by individuals. Uh, you know, they're, they're larger, maybe some of them have more resources, but at the end of the day, these are not giant corporations with shareholders and massive reserves and access to uh, uh, debt markets and bankers. I mean, th- these, are, these, are, these are essentially small businesses and they've had to uh, really find ways on their own to get through this because their circumstances are different from shop to shop, from house to house, from family to family. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the, um, we all got used to the expression pivot in, in not just in the restaurant business, but in all ways. Um, describe for me, if, if you can, if there's a kind of um, some of the more dominant uh, strategies for pivoting that you, you came across. You know, well, it, obviously um, delivery is one of them. Right. It, instantly, it was the, the delivery and takeout. And, you know, for some restaurants, that that has been quite successful. And, you know, there are some restaurants that are doing better with that now than they were pre-pandemic. In fact, some businesses mm-hmm. are doing more, some restaurants are doing more business now than they were pre-pandemic because of that, because uh, they found effective ways to do that. And these are restaurants that serve a style of food that's conducive for that. Think about mm-hmm. barbecue, think about pizza, yeah. think about some natural sort of takeout items like that. Um, but for your- think about it, we do it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> for your upscale restaurants or for restaurants that are serving something composed on a plate or for restaurants that are really selling the experience, you know, takeout and delivery is only gonna go so far. And you know, restaurants have been creative with this, uh, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a bridge. They're just trying, they're using that to try to get through. Um, what you've seen is, in many cases, smaller menus. Uh, restaurants are trying to limit their risk of you know how much inventory they have on hand, uh, and then they are rehiring. They're trying to restaff. They're training new people. Um, that has to be one of the most challenging aspects. This I've experienced. In we we had a meal just a few days ago from a restaurant that we order from all the time, and it it was a I'll just say it was an Italian dish, and it was like nothing like what we're used to getting right so i said oh they they lost their chef and uh, they're having to retrain somebody so that's that's got to be one of the biggest challenges is the restaffing well you've seen it uh, all across the economy everything from truck drivers to uh, gar- trash haulers to uh, you know airline pilots frankly you know i mean it, it's it's uh, when you shut everything down all at once as happened in the pandemic you know it gives people take some time to think about what's next. They make different decisions, uh, you know, things that would have naturally played out uh, without the pandemic over a course of time happened all at once, <laughs> right? And in the restaurant business, you have a lot of people, a lot of people make their career in the restaurant business. Other people uh, figure they'll work in a couple years and maybe they'll go back to school. Maybe they'll pursue another career. This is something that they're doing right now because it is easy to get a job. You can get hired. Or it's their day job. As I always say, uh, the people in the arts industry, which is my home base where I work, um, a a huge number of them really were uh, feeding their families and paying their rent with service industry work. But it's tough work. It's demanding. 
and um, you have to have nerves of steel and you have to have a smile on your face when you <laughs> want to kill the customer. <laughs> That's right. I waited on tables for shrimps <laughs> in New York for many years uh, through my college years. So I kind of know the drill. And it's, That's right. it's a tough business. It's a tough business. That's right. Well, that moment of, of change and, you know, what am I going to do next instead of happening for people on their own timelines happened instantly for everybody at the same time in the pandemic. And so it's not surprising that this is an industry that is, uh, you know, you, you, you can end everything on a dime, uh, rebuilding it, restarting uh, is much more gradual. Um, and what restaurant people tell me is that they were a pretty good place, uh, relatively speaking, by the end of the summer and then Hurricane Ida hits, essentially shuts down New Orleans yeah. for a week at least, many much longer in, in individual cases in some areas. Uh, and it was almost a back to zero. It was almost a, a complete reset for, for some shops. So yeah, there's a lot of new, uh, new faces in the business. Um, but the upside is, uh, you know, if people who are looking to move up, if people who are looking to get into the business, uh, they can find a, a pretty rapid advance. Uh, it, it's a time when people, you know, the operators, the restaurant owners, the chefs are, uh, the doors are wide open and they, they want to train and they, they want to bring people up. And there is this yeah, current of change in the industry. There is a current of change in the industry and um, you know, job seekers are asking for and getting more money. Uh, some of the, the, the standard uh, relationships of employer and employee are changing and uh, you know, restaurants uh, are being more flexible. They're trying to see what they can put on the table for folks. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a time of, of massive upheaval and change, but some good things are coming out of it. So one of the things that um, uh, you kind of implied and I, I wanted to uh, pursue a little further is um, uh, some of the, the, the people who've uh, jumped into the market uh, at this point. That, that floors me that anybody would think that this is a good time to open a restaurant. <laughs> But there have been openings. What's that all about? Constantly, constantly. And I, I was surprised at this too at, at first. Uh, the, you saw restaurant, new restaurants opening in the spring of 2000, excuse me, the spring, the spring of 2020, just months into the pandemic. And what those were uh, mostly were, were restaurants that were in the works before the pandemic and you know, uh, this, okay, yeah. were almost there. And they said, okay, well, either we're going to open or we're just going to walk away. So we got to roll the dice and open. And some of them have done quite well uh, because they opened knowing it was a pandemic, you know, no, not knowing where it was going to go or how long it was going to last, but at least they're opening the doors saying, okay, here's what we have to deal with right now versus, okay, here's how we've always done things. And, mm -hmm. Uh, how do we change it? Uh, so you see restaurants opening with far more outdoor dining, which is more flexible. You see restaurants opening with takeout windows built in. You see restaurants opening with their, their menus devised to, to be more takeout friendly, uh, to give them more flexibility, to give them sort of a second option if they had to shut down again or if they had to go into takeout only mode again. Um, but that doesn't account for all the restaurants that have, have kept opening. The ones that were already on the books, yes, fine, those opened many, many restaurants have opened that were completely conceived within the pandemic. And that has been really interesting because it, it's showing that people are, they're seizing the moment. They've, they've been inspired by this. They're seeing a turnover. They're seeing, uh, especially a lot of young talent, they're, they're expressing to me that they believe this is their time and uh, they want to take the opportunity and they want to they want to make a statement. Uh, in many cases, they, uh, they want to stand up for their neighborhood, for their city. Uh, they want to stand up for themselves. This is their opportunity to pivot, to become an owner or to make the step up from being uh, a food truck or a pop-up to being a brick and mortar, or, you know, a, to, to be a neighborhood restaurant. Uh, and you're seeing it all across town and uh, a wide spectrum of different flavors and culinary styles. Uh, and it's been really, really interesting. There's been no, no lack of new restaurants opening. Um, and in fact, it is something that we saw after Hurricane Katrina, much different crisis, much different situation. Uh, but if you rewind, you know, utter devastation in New Orleans, everything is closed. Uh, old places start coming back, but very often new places uh, also stepping up. People said at the same time, are you crazy? You're opening a new business in New Orleans? I mean, isn't there still water in the streets? You know, people thought the city was flooded for years afterwards, thanks to the recurring- Think uh, that way sometimes. Right, okay. Well, at moments, we are still flooded, fair. Uh, but uh, but that, it was a time when a, a next generation stepped up, and you're seeing that right now through the pandemic. 
Uh, next generation. And the other thing that I um, was really, um, I, I, I piled up a bunch of, I'm a newspaper hoarder. So I always have piles of old newspapers that I have to go through. And I was taking the moment of the holidays to do some of that. And I pulled out about I don't know, half a dozen of your articles. Um, so I really saw some trends. And, and one of them that's so obvious is this, this, this um, uh, the variety of ethnic uh, backgrounds in some of the restaurants. So of course yeah. we have many more Latino restaurants. We have, of course, we've, we've been having, um, as they say here, um, lots of Vietnamese restaurants, but we have even more. And, um, and then there's the Mediterranean, Palestinian, uh, um, just about every, all, all kind, I, call, I call, I say old Creole, but I also say new school Creole. Yeah. And then the markets, all these new markets, the Pythian and the um, other markets on Julia Street and so on. There's just this whole range of both uh, ethnic backgrounds, but also kind of concept of eating. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious uh, what, how you feel about that. That's part of that new generation, I guess, as you're talking about also. Uh, absolutely. Well, New Orleans is a food city, right? I mean, this is a food destination and that's, that's different here than it is in other cities. New York is a food city, Chicago, San Francisco, but New Orleans has its own food. <laughs> this is New Orleans cuisine is like saying Italian cuisine. It's like saying, Mexican cuisine. I mean, New Orleans has its own culinary identity, which is a very rare thing uh, in America, of course. Uh, but it's it, for that reason, it draws people and inspires people who are interested in food and not just gumbo and griots and grits and etouffee, not just New Orleans and Louisiana food. Uh, it is a city where people connect through food, where people talk about food constantly where people feel like this is part of their identity, this is their passion, their pursuit, their hobby, not just the thing that they do to indulge themselves or to feed themselves. Uh, and so that creates a very fertile ground for people who wanna express themselves in food and build businesses and create livelihood through food. Uh, and it has accelerated uh, the diversity of flavors and styles and talents and individuals uh, that have a claim to the New Orleans food story. Absolutely has. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. Uh, let's use Katrina as the line in the sand. I mean, pre-Katrina, uh, the city had a lot of restaurants that served the same food, that served a lot of New Orleans food, uh, really, really good stuff. Um, and then it had a real paucity of, of restaurants that were doing other things. And I remember friends, you know, pleading like, gosh, can't we just get a proper New York style pizza? Can't we get a, a good Indian restaurant? Oh my God, I would kill for a good Thai restaurant. Well, people heard those, those, those requests and uh, all these years later, um, you know, we, we have uh, everything from like you, you mentioned, I mean, just subcategories, not just Middle Eastern food, but Palestinian street food not just Vietnamese food, but uh, the Vietnamese food of the second generation of, you know, people who grew up in New Orleans uh, with Vietnamese parents. Their parents are from Vietnam. They're from America. They eat Vietnamese food. They eat gumbo. Uh, they eat banh mi. They have crawfish boils and they put all that together in their own restaurants. Right. Uh, and also a lot of Central American because uh, we had all of these people who came here uh, working in construction, starting with Katrina, and I guess that's just gone on and on. And uh, and, and I I just you know I'm a ricottas um, uh, regular, so uh, surrounding ricottas are um, Mexican. I I don't know what they. I really don't know what kind of Central American they are, but it's it's not just Mexican. It's also Honduran, it's Guatemalan in descent. They may typify it as Mexican, but. Again, it's a lot of people that have come in to serve their own population that's moved here. That's right. Yes, uh, we saw, you saw that immediately after Katrina, and it, it was not just a flash in the pan. A lot of people yeah. who came here for the re reconstruction jobs in those early years uh, made New Orleans their home. Uh, you, you see it not just in the restaurants, but in the proliferation of, of, uh, of grocery stores, Latin American grocery stores. Mm -hmm. um, markets, which I love. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the food, the, the, the taco trucks were some of the first signs of recovery after Hurricane Katrina. They got here faster than FEMA in some cases. Uh, well, <laughs> they stuck around. Uh, that, that was not part of the New Orleans food landscape pre-Katrina. It definitely right. is now. Uh, and you're right. It's, it's Mexican. It's especially Honduran. There's a very, very large Honduran population here in New Orleans. It's grown 
that um, you can find Salvadoran food. You can go, you find uh, niches from South America, Colombian restaurants. Um, Brazilian. Mm -hmm. Thrilling to, to sort through it. But you're also seeing different ideas, and this is what I always come back to, of what New Orleans food should be, of what Creole food can be. Uh, and that's the important part to me, because lots of cities will have a great Latin American food scene. Lots of cities will have a great Vietnamese food scene. Lots of cities will have a very really strong Korean food Angeles, scene. Yeah. New Orleans, only New Orleans has a New Orleans food scene. Only no, when they try to do it somewhere else, um, not really. Right. I've read so, blackened seafood in New York. Ooh. So what, what's really thrilling to me is the energy and the vibrancy of a younger uh, next generation restaurants coming along that are exploring uh, Creole food. And it, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it ranges from, look at um, the Munch Factory in Gentilly. Uh, what Chef Jordan and Alexis do there is is New Orleans Creole home cooking uh, brought to a restaurant that's family friendly, anytime accessible, high quality, and just fun. They have fun with this food. They have a bedrock good gumbo, and then they have, you know, like munchy food, you know, <laughs> let's take some buffalo shrimp and pair it with this. Uh, look in Treme at uh, Fritai. This is a Haitian restaurant, again, conceived completely within the pandemic. I just uh, heard about that from you. I didn't know. I live in Treme and I didn't know about that because I'm not going out virtually yeah, at all because of COVID. But um, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, testing that out. That is Creole food. That is uh, yeah. Haitian food by a young chef, Chef Charlie Pierre, uh, who has braided his own experience as a second generation you know, son of, of Haitian immigrants with his experience coming up through the modern American culinary scene. And when he got to New Orleans, he looked around and said, this place feels Creole. This place feels Haitian. I want to make my statement here. And his restaurant is very revealing. You go in there, you have great cocktails, you have dishes that taste like they could be from New Orleans. Uh, they maybe it's a little bit different, but it fits in. It fits in. It, it, it shares the same DNA. And that's a good feeling. I mean, it, it, it really expresses this sense of Creole unity and isn't unity something we need now yeah and spe but speaking of that at the same time um I, I i can't say that i feel that african-american restaurants or african restaurants or, or just plain black restaurants um have seen as much of a spurt as maybe some of these other ethnic groups so you know we lost a couple over the years that were mainstays for misha helene was a place that i don't know how long you've been here but I mean, when I first came here, Shea Helene was one of the in spots to go and it, it's long gone. Um, and I, I, there are a number of small African-American food vendors that I've come to know through somebody uh, who works with them, but um, they're not very high profile yet. And I'm sure they will, um, again, pivot towards having um, brick and mortar places ultimately as many other uh, food truck folks do. but. Um, I haven't seen quite that same spurt in the Black community. Uh, you know, every time one of our our, our generations old uh, Black-owned restaurants closes, it is a real loss. And the one I'm thinking of right now is Dunbar's that have been around for so long. Um, Celestine Dunbar and her family just have been such a part of, of so many people's experience of New Orleans food and hospitality over almost four decades and uh unfortunately they, they just closed and closed for good and um you know wish them the best of whatever the family does next i hope and pray that someday their gumbo and fried chicken and red beans are in circulation again but we'll see i mean it, it, again, and then alternatively you have a little dizzy's another one of my mainstays and um i, I was so ecstatic when um uh Wayne passed the baton to his kids and they reopened it because I was really uh, worried about it not coming back as I had certain dishes that I had made for me there that I would die to not be able to uh, get uh, keep 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 on getting crab meat dishes crab meat is one of my favorite things and it's kind of hard to get in the restaurants because it is expensive unfortunately I don't really understand why it's so expensive but um, yeah it's one of the things I like to get uh, is is a, a crab meat dish at um, crab meat omelet or probably anything at Little Dizzy's. Well, to your to your bigger point about um, you know have have black owned restaurants uh, seen the same growth 
I, 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 you know, we have to acknowledge that um, black entrepreneurs are dealing with the problems of, of racism and access to resources uh, that are widespread through all kinds of ventures they may undertake. Uh, but with restaurants, you did see uh, more attention, more interest, more support, and more unity for Black-owned restaurants uh, through the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, through the, the hard summer of 2020, one of the great things to come out of it was uh, better support and better connections and networks between people in the business and between people across the community that want to uh, support the new rising voices. And um, in the restaurant world, you know, it's it's the job of people like me, frankly, to, to find the smaller places that don't have big advertising budgets uh, and uh, to help uh, people find them to help tell their stories. And that's something I've been trying to do uh, through our coverage. And it's always very rewarding to find uh, not just the, the old classics, but uh, the new uh, rising voices, the places that are, um, that are coming up and increasingly are working together. A great example of this is Addis Nola. This is an Ethiopian restaurant. It's on Broad Street in Mid-City near the courthouse. Uh, it serves fantastic uh, traditional Ethiopian food. Uh, and the, the folks that run that there are, uh, it's a family-run restaurant, and they have been outstanding in forging connections across uh, the restaurant community with other Black-owned restaurants and with other restaurants owned by other people. <laughs> other well, that's something that I noticed in some of your writing, aside from, I, I certainly picked up your attention to the smaller restaurants in the neighborhoods. I, I so deeply appreciate that. Um, uh, but uh, this, I, I, I've heard you comment about the collaborations between restaurants in, in some of your writing. And uh, that's not something I have to say that I've focused on. So I wanna understand a little bit more about that. So when they collaborate, obviously they're helping each other, but I didn't know that that was actually a trend. It, yes, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's small restaurants that have an affinity for each other, whether it's through their style or their, uh, their backgrounds, if it's just, they're friends and they want to cook together and do cool things. And what it does is, is mutual uplift uh, with social media being so huge now, especially for restaurants, um, you know, marketing and promoting themselves, you know, one restaurant works with another and they get access to all the people that might follow or be interested in the individual restaurants. So they, they, they kind of double their, their, their bandwidth in that way. Uh, and, you know, maybe they're cooking different types of food, but they approach it with the same aesthetic with the same, uh, discipline with the same focus on quality and freshness and you see what interesting things that they can cook up together but it, it is more about um, you know accessing each other's each other's followings each, each other's regulars and customers uh, and introducing them to to each mm -hmm. other like hey we're, we're doing this over here uh, if you like us you're gonna like this place you know they cook yeah. different food they, they come from a different background but we share a lot of the same values and you're gonna see that play out in their operation that's that's what these collaborations are saying and i that's, that's so thrilling I, I love them that's great well um we're coming up against the time wall but i i i, I really want to hear your speculation because you are so deeply ingrained in what's going on and have done as i said uh, uh an incredible a sensational job really um sharing with us what's going on um, give me your vision. Tell me, where do you see this going? Uh, let's just assume that this pandemic is going to um, sort of slide into some kind of um, flu-like variant per year, and you got to go get your new uh, fall um, uh, booster shot, uh, aka known as the, your, your annual flu shot. Um, let's just say we keep having a little bit of this up and down and so on. What, what's, what's your a sense of how this goes forward in New Orleans. Well, I I, I don't want to uh, I don't want to prognosticate on uh, on public health <laughs> on public health uh, trajectories, but I will say that uh, ever since the pandemic has begun, you know, the hope has has been for that that day when when the floodgates are open again and everybody can do it what what they want and and people can travel most importantly because New Orleans is such a big destination and it's such a big food destination and there is so much pent up not demand but just just need this need for people to get out and explore and connect and kick back and celebrate and and do all the things that they've sort of deferred 
And when that happens, New Orleans uh, should be a big beneficiary. And it, you know, people, like I say, ever, ever since the pandemic began, it's like, just get through this, just keep the doors open somehow, keep, keep the business intact so that when the good times come back and they will come back, we'll be here uh, to reap the benefits of it. And it's really important that not just the big players and not just the chains and the brands are around for that, but the mom and pops, the small neighborhood restaurants, the place that really give New Orleans its character, its texture, its culture, its personality, that comes through in our small restaurants. And those are the ones that have to be around uh, both, to, to, both to reap the, the benefits of, of, of travel and tourism coming back, uh, but also for the sake of the city itself. I mean, those, those places are what makes living here so much fun and so rewarding and such a, a valuable part of the, of the culture. It's not just economics, it's the culture and the people and those places have to make it through this, uh, not just for the tourists, not just for themselves, but for us, <laughs> for New Orleans who enjoy this. Um, so I can't resist um, this little closing uh, strategy. Um, uh, I, I notice in almost every graph that you write about a restaurant, you manage to mention a couple dishes uh, so that people have a sense of what that restaurant has to offer. I can't resist asking you of all the new dishes that you have come across in all the different restaurants, give me your top without mentioning the restaurant. Cause I know you don't want to show any favoritism, but just mention two or three of the dishes that have evolved of late that just knock you out. I know this is a, th a thinker. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I got one for you. Here's uh pho, the Vietnamese soup, uh, crossed with uh, American style, slow and low, smoky barbecue. Mm. Whoa. Okay, that's an interesting Ooh, one, uh, right? That'll do it for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is the place we mentioned earlier. Uh, it has- um, Which one, which one is it? Uh, okay, so that, 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 that soup is from a place called M Chai, in um it's in metairie now it was formerly in marini moved to metairie on vets uh not too long ago it's it's spelled e-m-t-r-a-i uh and it means little brother in vietnamese uh so you can look it up that way um another one i mentioned free thai i gotta throw something to them i mean it's, it's this this dish is always on my mind it's the free thai sandwich it's crisp griddled pork just falling apart tender uh, made into a sandwich, but instead of bread, uh, it's sandwiched between two planks of fried plantain uh, with this oh hard, spicy slaw and this sweet heat mango sauce on it. Oh and my God. You, think oh my you, God. you have this thing in your hand and you just think, this is going to get all over me. I, how, how can I eat this thing? But you don't care. You close your eyes, you bite in, you taste all those layers of crunch and flavor and, you know, Pass me another rum cocktail, please. This is heaven. <laughs> What's the name of that place? Free Thai. Yeah, Free Thai. It's on Basin Street, just uh, just really close to the overpass in Treme. Um, okay, that's that's my that's my neighborhood. That one I can check it out. Yeah, so I'll leave I'll leave it on those two. Between okay. between those two, you've got a, you've got a lot of calories to deal with. Um, Ian, uh, thank you so much for uh, your writing, your coverage of what's going on in our uh, restaurants in New Orleans, and therefore New Orleans. And um, I hope to be reading you forever in my life in New Orleans. Okay. Thank, thanks for your kind words. Thanks so much for having me. And I um, hope everyone hearing this uh, stays safe and stays positive. We, we need everybody together in this town. Thank you very much. Very, very much. Ian McNulty writing for The Advocate. Those of you who are gotten out of the habit of reading the newspapers, you better get back there because there's still a tremendous amount of important information on those printed pages. And I'm a big believer in print. So I'm going to keep on, uh, keep on, keep on uh, reading you. Thank you. Bye. Now we are going to speak with one of my absolute favorite creative people in the city, Giovanna Joseph, who heads up something called Opera Creole, um, that is a most amazing opera company. And I'm not a, a pure opera fan, uh, but I am a semi. So for example, I of, of course love Terence Blanchard's operas. Um, I love um, Philip Glass's operas. I, I like contemporary. I like 
what's coming as opposed to what's gone. Uh, although I loved your the uh, production that you all did of Tree Manisha at the Music Box, that was an extraordinary experience also. Um, but now you have something coming up for Martin Luther King Day. And um, I was thrilled to get your notice of it. And uh, that's what we want to talk about because that starts off a week of events associated with the closing week of our prospect five, prospect being one of our big triennials like the one in Venice and Basel and Miami, this is ours. And it was a beautiful show this year and it really focused on equity and social justice issues and had a lot of work by um, black artists. So that was, and uh, it, it was just a, a, a tremendous show. So um, kicking off the week is MLK Day and, um, and your performance. So tell me about what you all are up to. Well, it's, it's interesting that we ended up choosing uh, the 21st uh, because we were focused on, uh, because the concert is focused on civil rights, uh, opera people involved in civil rights, and also those who were suffragists and um, involved in voting rights. And um, so the concert is actually celebrating, we're finally trying to get around to celebrating our 10th anniversary, which was back in May, but COVID has been in the way of that. And um, so we in went- In the way of a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, the idea was kind of signaled by uh, Kamala Harris becoming uh, vice president and uh, the recent uh, uh, celebration of, of the suffragist movement that had uh, from the 1913 uh, 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 year. And so I started thinking about that and my daughter and I really wanted to uh, look at what black women have contributed to civil rights and equity and all of those things, especially since Opera Creole is founded and run by two black women. Um, so we're looking at the past uh, from Ida B. Wells to Kamala Harris, but also from Sojourner Truth and, and Harriet Tubman. Um, and we are actually including as part of the concert an, an interview that will be that will be taped earlier, but will be presented at the concert with Ida B. Wells's great-granddaughter. Wow. Who wrote a book about her, Michelle Duster is her name. So we're gonna be interviewing her this weekend and we will show that as part of the concert. What's gonna be awesome about it is we're looking at, we, you say you like new music. We're doing uh, works by two uh, recently uh, written uh, operas by black women composers one of Harriet Tubman by Enquiero Okuye, if I'm saying that correctly, and the opera Adea by Cynthia um, Lee. So those are, are new and living composers. Um, and um, we're also gonna be including Margaret Bonds, you know, those, those kinds of historical composers, our own New Orleans uh, Camille Nickerson, um, and so there'll be a lot of uh, a lot of women composers as well. So it's it's selected works from the various operas uh, by um, either uh, uh, women of color mm -hmm. um, or about them. Is that it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Great. yeah. And some of it is uh, art songs. Uh, Florence Price and 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 uh, Margaret Bonds are mo mostly art song writers and spiritual writers. And so it's gonna be a combination of things. We're also gonna throw in, not a, not a female composer, but um, uh, Dan Shore's uh, opera, The Freedom Ride, uh, which is all about New Orleans and the freedom riders that came and were housed at Xavier and kept safe until they could get on the buses and go. And there were a lot of women involved in that. Um, and, um, so we would just we, we want to make it fun, but it's really going to be um, really celebrating black women who have uh, have made things better for us historically, but are still leading the fight in in voting rights and getting people elected these days. Um, and we're very much involved in it, these most recent elections as well. Really, so it's going um, to be at the Pythian, which uh, and uh, on the second floor, which is called Lorania. Uh, it's a, it's now a wedding venue, but historically, when the Pythian was built, um, 
It was built by a former slave, and his wife was named Lorania. She was one of the early New Orleans members of the NAACP. And uh, so we, and, and that second floor space was originally an opera house or auditorium where they put on classical performances. And on the roof, they had a rooftop, they had a jazz club. So they did both of those things. And Louis Armstrong performed there when he was a 12 year old boy. Um, so we wanted to go back and sort of reclaim the history of Lorania as this classical uh, venue. And um, we'll talk about her a little bit, uh, as much as it's not a lot of history that we know, but. So uh, is that Urania, U-R-A-N-I-A? Lorania, L-A-U-R-E-N-I-A, Lorania. One more time, L-O-R. L-A-U, like Laura, but Lorania. L-A-U-R-E-N-I-A. -A. Okay. Yeah. Okay, wow. Well, you've packed a lot of serious <laughs> content and history. Yeah, yeah. And needless to say, um, you know, entertaining performances yeah. uh, in the evening. It sounds like, how long? It sounds like it'll be on for a while. Uh, well, we, we're keeping it at 90 minutes. Yeah, it's not going to be, it's not going to be that long. Okay, um, and there's and a charge. We're, we're going to feature um, in in some within the context of the songs that we're doing. We're also talking a little bit about people always think of opera as this thing that's over here. It's elitist, and the singers aren't don't really care about what's happening in the world. And you know, when you look at Marian Anderson and her impact, um, uh, we know that when she sang on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Um, a little boy named Martin Luther King was listening on the radio and was impacted by hearing her sing My Country Tis of Thee. Um, Coretta Scott King was classically trained and um, gave concerts to raise money for the movement. Uh, also, uh, along with, with working with Dr. King is Bayard Rustin and Merle Evers. They were all trained musicians who used their, their gift as part of their um, supporting the movement. So there's been this great history that's never talked about in terms of what opera singers have given. Uh, and uh, Marian Anderson turned out to be the only woman who sang on the program of Martin Luther King's March on Washington. He invited her to come because he was so impacted by hearing her sing when he was a little boy. So it's all kinds of great stuff in there. But well, we, I we always find a way to make it cover all of it, but make it fun. And um, we thought that was one of the better ways to celebrate our 10th anniversary. We're also very proud that New Orleans Opera has partnered with us to, to do this and Amistad Research Center. So they are the ones that are handling um, the interview with, with Ms. Duster or you know making that uh, contractual agreement with her. And so, um, so it's just really a wonderful, wonderful opportunity, a wonderful event. So um, the thing that strikes me about the arts in general, opera included, but not exclusively, and certainly uh, Terence uh, Blanchard's most recent two operas both address social issues of equity for, um, for people of uh, um, alternate, um, sexual preferences, uh, for example, in both cases, actually. Um, but, but more than that, it's, it's the arenas in which they operated, the political arenas in one case and the, and the boxing arena in the other. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the champion to me is um, really at the top of, I, honestly, I can't think of another opera that moved me more. Mm -hmm. um, and the other opera that was as strong for me maybe was the Philip Glass's opera about um, the colonialization of, of the Americas that was very powerful also. But, but the, the champion just um, really blew me away. And uh, his yeah, most yeah. recent opera, of course, was pretty astounding also. Yeah. I, um, so I, people don't, I don't think, focus on the extent to which the arts, whatever the arts are, whether it's visual, performing, uh, media, film, etc., do address major political, social um, issues. Mm 
um, on a routine basis. I mean, many, many visual artists, including my own husband, whose work has been about the environment since he was a teenager, literally in the 50s, all of his work throughout all those decades has been um, telling that story, including the hanging of a marlin in the front of our house when they did all those house floats. We hung oh, a big marlin and we I spent, remember that. Our message was that someday the water will be up to here. We'll have marlin swimming on us one day to heaven if we don't do something about climate change. So, yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's really remarkable and I'm uh, it's it's interesting to hear how much you are representing that in the performances you've chosen to do on Monday. So it's it sounds really powerful. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah, we're we're you know that's just there's so much that we really need to unpack about what opera is, what opera singers do, and how we um, how we have impacted everyday life. Um, and for me, as a as a young person, just seeing Marian Anderson told me that I could be whatever, you know, just just and just having that model that example makes a big difference but she also gave everybody else the confidence to get their organizations going and to get galvanized um and um but there you know there were also people like josephine baker who you know was very politically involved and was the only woman that spoke at martin luther king's um march on washington so we, we have these right. she, she was impactful in, in Europe and America. I mean, she yeah. really had a very wide impact. Yeah. 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 So the arts are people, you know, it's a conversation we, we should have more about how artists have impacted uh, our world as we know it. And especially when it comes to getting people out to vote, which we have to still push get people out to vote. Well, of course, and, and right now um, it, it's, it's I, I really, it, it, as long as I've lived and I'm a little bit older than I'd like to admit, um, it, the issue of voting has never been as challenged and critical since the civil rights movement as it is today. And, yeah. uh, and, and we, we, many of us make the comment uh, casually, but it's really true that this does feel in many ways like the second civil war. We are fighting issues that we thought we had fought over yes. uh, uh, decades ago, and here we are again. Um, and, you know, somebody said something to me yesterday. I'm trying to think, oh, yeah. Um, I, one of the most amazing things that my husband and I experienced in our house in Tremay on Esplanade is the service people who call on us. So we had a Cox uh, a cable technician here yesterday. His name is Terrell Walker. And he was fascinating. And, and there are uh, so many of them have much richer backgrounds than you might suspect of service people. And this gentleman was a math genius in school. And he's, he's, expressing it through various technical jobs, but he has a bigger picture in mind going forward. Um, but he, he made the comment that about Trump that he had revealed not just said and done things that are abhorrent, but he revealed so much of what was out there that it's not like we didn't know yeah. that they were out there, the viewpoints but um, he, he pulled the curtain back and that was a very important function. Sometimes that's what happens, something very negative that we experience and we say, horrors, how could that be? And then you look under and you say, oh, it was there all along. It wasn't just him. It was, you know, the people he is speaking to. So um, we, we, we definitely have, have a, a, you know, experienced a moment here with this, uh, the voting challenges and the gerrymandering and the, all the laws being passed all over the country and they're just devastating to the right of people to vote. And um, I love the idea of working through opera and other art forms to um, try to excite people, I think is the key thing yeah. as to the importance of them getting out to vote. If folks get out to vote who are concerned about the right to vote, we will 
I hope, um, prevent what the Republicans are trying to achieve with all of this, this maneuvering. Um, so uh, I, I'm amazed that uh, Opera Creole once again has, has focused on this issue. How do you see this playing forth between now and the election of, of uh, this first election, uh, even before 2024, but uh, the election coming up this year? Well, I hope that people will take it seriously. It, 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 it frustrates me that people uh, will run out and vote for president and then they don't go back in the same amount of numbers in midterms. And they have to have a Congress that can work with them. You, you can't stay home for the midterms. So that's really important. And so I hope that, you know, that we can excite people about getting out to vote. And, um, you know, my daughter, Aria Mason, co-founder of Opera Creole, she's very passionate about this and has really helped to galvanize this idea of this concert. And, and we wanted to celebrate our 10 years by doing something that we thought was relevant to the community, to speak to the community and, and lift up the community because New Orleans has always been in the fight for civil rights. So, so I have a, a, a crazy suggestion. Uh, just for the fun of it, and you can ignore it. But in many elections, um, a candidate has truly broken through and rallied voters by being on the corner passing out flyers. If if you guys scheduled a couple performances out in the middle of anywhere at a bus stop um, on Canal Street at Jackson Square um, at Armstrong Park you know just anywhere um, in front of little dizzies maybe um, that you would interact with a lot of people who should vote uh, I, I'll tell you what I'll be out there with my camera that would be, <laughs> I think you get a lot of coverage in addition to the people that you would interact with on the street so Street opera for well, it, our vote. Originally, when we started 10 years ago, we wanted to go where people would not expect to see opera singers. So we would love to do that. And we have scenes, which we're also going to sing from my opera that I wrote, Lions of Reconstruction. We're singing the scenes where people are, the scene where they said, come celebrate with us. Tonight we go forward to, you know, to vote the Constitutional Convention in the 1860s that New Orleans did. So. So we could we would we could easily go out and sing some of those scenes and hand out flowers <laughs> and it. To vote. If you I, did, I, that would be months, fun. I, I, we'd be out there and and make sure that we get lots of coverage for it and <laughs> impact people not only on the street but uh, through the media as well. Yeah. Uh, and Joseph, you're one of my heroes. I, I I'm always astounded at uh, the things that you make happen and the beauty of the performances that you present. So. I will be there uh, at the Pythian Monday. No, what time? Friday. Friday, Friday, January, Friday. January. What time? January 21st, 7 o'clock. And the tickets are at uh, neworleansopera.org, $25, and $10 for students. So we want to get you know young people out as well. Well, I'm also proud that New Orleans Opera is stepping up too. That's a, an important uh, They have gesture. been a great partner. We've developed a great partnership under the new leader, Claire Borovac. So I'm, I'm very proud of that. Very happy to hear that. All right. Happy Martin Luther King Day and um, happy voting, everybody. And thank you so much, Giovanna Joseph and your daughter. Uh, thank you. You guys keep on keeping on. Thank you. We'll try. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Jean Nathan for Crosstown Conversations at WBOK, what people are talking about.